Uh, scholar N.T. Wright points out an account uh, from 1941 that, that said this, uh, for over five years, this man has been chasing around Europe like a madman in search of something he could set on fire. Now, of course, it doesn't take a degree in history to understand what this is about. This is about World War II, just devastating for Europe and, and fueled by this, this seeming madman going around and, and having conflict everywhere he goes. But what might be surprising is who this quote is talking about and who it's from. This quote is actually about uh, Winston Churchill. He's the one who's being called the madman here intent on setting things on fire. And the one who said this was actually Adolf Hitler. Hitler go, went, went on to call uh, Churchill an international incendiary, just intent on destruction all throughout Europe. Now, we look back at this and say, well, how could he possibly say that? I mean, Hitler himself, he's the one who's, who's acting like a crazy person going around and, and, and going through borders and, and trying to take over countries and all this stuff. How, how can he say this? Well, it's an example of how easily we can be deluded about who we are and deluded about who the people around us are. Hitler saw himself as savior. He saw Churchill as the enemy, as the, the antagonist in this whole situation. Of course, it's hard to know how much of this was, was simply rhetoric, but the degree to which Hitler believed this was true shows how powerfully we can be wrong about ourselves and be wrong about the people around us. That's an extreme example, but self-delusion isn't the exclusive malady of megalomaniacs. In fact, self-delusion is an incredibly common reality among humans. And more to the point, we can be more liable to self-delusion than we think. And we're going to see today how that self-delusion can make us miss the best news in the world. So we're going to see today that, that people are, are under, uh, can't understand who Jesus is, and at the same time, they can't understand who they are. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at John chapter 8 this morning. Um, if you brought a Bible, that's great. Go ahead and turn there. If you want to borrow a, a Bible from the, the church uh, chair rack in front of you, do that as well. Uh, John 8, 1 is found on page 1662 of the church Bibles. We're going to see this uh, self-delusion play out among the people as they're first mistaken about Jesus, and then as we see that they're mistaken about uh, themselves as well. But before we get to that, we see an attempt to trap Jesus. That's at the beginning of chapter 8 here. So here's the attempt to, to trap Jesus. Now, um, there's, there's some question about the manuscript evidence here. Your Bible probably has some kind of note, whether it's a footnote or something in the text about that. If you have questions about what that means or what to do with that, uh, talk to me afterwards. Send me an email this week. That's fine. But I want to focus just on the story itself uh, this morning. So this is uh, the beginning of John chapter 8. Technically, it starts in verse 53 of John 7. Here's what it says. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, this is a trap because 
There's no way for Jesus to win here. If he upholds the law and what Moses wrote, then it's going to be an incredibly unpopular thing among the people. And not only that, but also he could get in a lot of trouble with Rome, who didn't give the Jews the, the right to actually do capital punishments. And on the other hand, if he said that, that you didn't have to punish her for this, then he was going against God's law. And so there's no way that he can get around this. He either goes against the people or he gets, goes against the Romans or he goes against God's law. There's, there's no way to win in this situation. That's why it's a trap. He can't win. Verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus has totally turned the, the trap around. He, he's refusing to play their game. He will not be trapped into this. So he doesn't condone the woman's sin, and he doesn't d disregard God's law, but instead what he does is expose the hypocrisy of the people who are bringing this woman to him. See, for those leaders who bring the woman in, she's nothing to them. They don't care anything about her. She is simply a pawn in this game that they're trying to play. They are trying to win a victory against Jesus, and she's simply a pawn in that trap. But they're not interested in justice, and that's their hypocrisy. Where's the man, right? Adultery takes two people, and if they were really interested in justice, then they would have brought the man and the woman together. But instead, what they're doing is doing the all-too-common thing of punishing the woman in this kind of situation and letting the man go free. And so Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He cuts right through it. If you are guiltless in this situation, well, then pick up a stone and throw it. And of course, that exposes them, and they realize what they have done here. And so they leave one by one, starting with the older ones who get it more easily and then moving on to the rest. But then notice how Jesus leaves this. He pronounces forgiveness and then he commands repentance. And th this is the gospel pattern. Jesus offers us forgiveness for everything wrong we've ever done and then he calls us to a new life. He calls us to transformation. So the woman is not told that her sin is okay because it's not. This is going against God's holiness. It is destructive to herself. It's destructive to her community. It's not okay. So he calls her out of that and doesn't leave her hopeless, but calls her to new life. In the first chapter of John, John declared that Jesus came filled with grace and truth. And that's what he's showing here. That's what this woman has experienced. She's experienced the grace of Jesus in offering her forgiveness and the truth of Jesus in calling her to holiness, calling her to a new life. So it's a great little story, and there's a lot more that we could say about this, but, but I just want to draw out a theme that's going to continue throughout the whole chapter 8 here that we're looking at today. The leaders here are, are confident in their own rightness. And so as they're bringing this woman before Jesus for uh, a trap and for pronouncing judgments, they feel like they are in the right. They are justified in doing this. And yet Jesus quickly turns this around on them. He shows that they are being incredibly hypocritical there. 
And it's a really uncomfortable place for them to be. He has shown them that they are the ones who are in the wrong. And so they get it to some degree. They get it enough to leave the trap, abandon that, and leave in shame, but they don't get it enough to actually repent and turn to him. But their self-delusion is being uncovered here, and it's a really uncomfortable thing for them. But as we continue on through the chapter, we're going to see that it's only going to get worse as their delusion is uncovered more and more. See, in the the first place, what we see is that the people are mistaken about Jesus. Look at the next section here, verse 12. Here's how it starts. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this almost gets lost in the dialogue that follows, but this is the start of this exchange is just incredibly beautiful. Jesus makes a powerful claim. I am the light of the world. And then he gives this stunning offer to the people. If you will follow me, you will walk in the light instead of in the darkness. Now, this is great news. And, and it's actually how this gospel of John started, this biography of Jesus' life. It, it started with this same imagery of light shining into darkness. It's worth our time to go back and look at that again. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to just sit with that for a minute. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. Isn't that what we want to know? We want to know that the darkness doesn't win. When we look at our own lives, when we look around us at the world, we want to know that evil doesn't defeat good. We want to know that the light shines through the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. So what Jesus is saying here is, is incredibly good news. It's reassuring to know that he is the light of the world. And what he offers to everyone who's hearing him is to participate in that light, to step out of darkness and to be transformed, that we would walk in light instead of walking in darkness. It's an incredible offer that's given to the people here. And yet it's going to be very quickly muddied. Verse 13. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So rather than seeing the beauty of this offer, that Jesus is the light of the world and that they can participate in that light through him, rather than that, they turn to dispute and and argue over what he has said. And this reminds us of the other part of what John says at the introduction about how people will respond to the light. 
John 1, 9 and 10. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So the light comes, and this is who Jesus is. He is the true light of the world, but people don't recognize him, and they don't receive him. And that's what's happening here in John 8. So Jesus is here emphasizing the unique relationship he has with God. God is his own father, and he's calling out their ignorance. They don't know where he came from. They don't know where he's going. They're just lost and confused here. They are stuck in the limits of their human understanding, and really they can't help that. The only way they could possibly help that is to recognize who Jesus is and to accept that he actually is from God, the one and only Son of God. But as long as they're unwilling to do that, then they're stuck. There's nowhere for them to go. They'll be mistaken about him forever. And that's what happens. Verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many believed in him. Now again, Jesus is continuing to proclaim his unique relationship with God. God is his Father. He is sent from God. But the people are continuing to show that they simply don't understand. And this failure to understand who Jesus is draws throughout this whole passage. They're thinking, well, is he going to kill himself? Is that what he means by this? Who are you? They don't understand. They don't understand what he's saying about his Father. The people are stuck in their own human perception. They have made a judgment about who Jesus is, and they think he's just another one of them. He's just another teacher. He can't possibly be who he's saying. He can't possibly be the unique, one and only Son of God sent to rescue them. As I was working through this passage this week, I was struck by by how unnecessarily sad this is. See, Jesus is offering them hope, and he's giving them a clear picture of who he is. And at the same time, they're caught up in debate instead of actually hearing what Jesus says and recognizing how good it is that he is offering them. They're just stuck in this. They're stuck in argument. And I think this is so like us. We get distracted by by silly arguments trying to show that we know what's going on here, but it makes us lose out on things. So my kids have picked up on the the classic childhood game, Made You Look. Uh, I'm not a great fan of this game. It's not my favorite game. After about one successful uh, Made You Look, I'm done. Uh, But my kids have shown great perseverance. They can play this game for hours. So they're sitting there, and and one of them will point at the way, hey, there's a moose out there. 
made you look. And then they will go on. They'll continue on for like you know, half an hour trying to get themselves, hey, what is that out there? And then they're all, what they're doing basically is conditioning themselves to not respond when someone points out the window. That's what they're doing, right? They're making sure that I'm never going to be got. So I'm conditioning myself. I, I'm going to show that I know what's up here. And if someone points out the window, I'm not going to look at that thing. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, I came into the kitchen in the morning and there was this beautiful sunrise out the windows. And this was really neat. And the kids were all facing the other way, eating their breakfast. And so I walk in and I say, hey, check it out. And they freeze, right? Because there's no way they're going to turn around. There's no way they're going to get gotten in this. They know what's going on. They're going to show that they're not gullible. They know this. They're not going to get fooled. Okay, confession. I have before walked into a room and pointed out and then said, made you look. So this is my own fault. I brought this on myself. But finally, I get them to turn around and look. No, no there's a sunset out there, and it's really cool. And, and, but they almost missed out on that because they wanted to show how much they know what's going on, how much they are not going to get fooled. And as you look at the, the religious leaders here and how they respond to Jesus, it's almost like they're, they're in this childlike dispute. Jesus is making this beautiful offer to them. And yet they're saying, yeah, I, I'm not going to fall for that. I don't believe you, and I don't think that's what's going on here. And they're caught in debate about this. Well, you can't testify to yourself. Well, who are you? Where's your father? What is all this about? Jesus makes amazing claims. I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will step out of darkness into light and never walk in darkness again. And yet they fail to listen to him. But notice that all throughout here, Jesus is continuing to offer them opportunities to truly understand he warns them. He says, if, if you don't believe who I am, then you are going to die in your sin. It's a strong warning, but that's not what he wants to have happen to them. He warns them because he wants them to see who he really is, that he is the one and only Son of God, that they would believe that, believe in him, and find life instead of death, light instead of darkness. That's what he's offering them. Now, the encouraging news here is that some are believing, some get it. And this last verse gives us hope. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So this is really great news. By and large, the people don't get Jesus, but now many are actually believing him. But we start to see another problem then, because not only do most people not understand Jesus, but we see a second problem here, that the people don't understand themselves either. Look at verses 31 and 32. Here's how this next section starts. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now again, this is a fantastic statement. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I mean, who doesn't want freedom? Freedom is one of these things that, that drives our lives. We want to experience freedom. And Jesus is saying, here's how you get it. You cling to my words. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. An amazing offer for the people. But once again, the beautiful argument is met with arguments instead. The beautiful offer is met with arguments. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. 
So Jesus offers them this claim of freedom, and they say, we've, we've already got that. We're not slaves. We're, we're Abraham's children. We're, we've never been slaves. And so we start to see the, the deeper problem here. That they don't get Jesus, but even when many are starting to believe him and see who he is, they don't understand their own need for him. So not only are most people mistaken about Jesus, but they're mistaken about themselves and their own need. See, if, if we don't understand what our need is before Jesus, then we're never going to come to the kind of faith that's going to bring true freedom, the kind of freedom that Jesus is offering here. See, Jesus here pinpoints the pervasive problem of humanity. We are slaves to sin. It's not just that we do some wrong things. It's not that just that we actively sin, but it's that we are enslaved to sinfulness. Our natural point is rebellion against God, and we are trapped in that. We can't help but do that. We, we consider ourselves free people with free will, but the reality is that we are enslaved to sin. And Jesus offers us the solution to that. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And this is the only way out of that entrapment to sin, is to be set free from Jesus himself. That's what's being offered here. But if we don't believe that we're slaves, then how can we ever possibly accept the offer of freedom? Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now, these now are very harsh words. See, the people that Jesus is talking to, they're starting to believe in who he is, and yet they're finding their identity in the fact that, that they're children of Abraham. And so they're good with God. And truly, to, to be a, a part of Abraham's family, that's a great advantage. God had promised to turn Abraham's family into his people, to bless them, to be with them, to watch over them. But what has happened is that they have turned away from God. And so they become blind to their own sin. They're, they're putting all of their stock, all of their identity in the fact that they are Abraham's children when Jesus is pointing out that their actions show that they're not actually Abraham's children. Their actions show that they're actually children of the devil. Now, that's obviously a very provocative statement. No one wants to hear that they're a child of the devil. But what Jesus is doing here is showing them their true need so that they can accept his salvation. But as long as they're caught not knowing their need, blind to their need, they're never going to accept him as their Savior because they don't think they need a Savior. 
So Jesus is graciously showing him, this is who you truly are. He's giving them a chance to turn and to repent and receive salvation. But it's so hard for us to actually hear this. When someone calls us out on something like this, when they say something that that is not complimentary to us, that the most natural thing in the world is, is for us to get defensive. And we want to fight back. We don't want to listen to anything that's being said here. It's so hard for us to actually listen and receive words from someone like this. I, I heard a great example of this uh, over this past week. MIT ran this uh, story online t- entitled The Hipster Effect, Why Anti-Conformists Always End Up Looking the Same. So I don't know if you're familiar with the, the term hipster. It's a, it's a bit um, tired now, but it's been the source of some really uh, amusing jokes. We can make fun of hipsters all the time. But hipsters are basically uh, people who see themselves as outside the, the mainstream of culture. So they're, they're cool, they're unique, they're anything but ordinary. But what, what MIT article was showing was how nonconformists end up looking the same and establishing a new norm. So right over the top of that article, they had this, this big picture of the, your standard hipster. You know, he's got the beard, he's got the plaid shirt, all that stuff. Well, one hipster saw the article and he was not happy about it. Not only did he totally disagree with this and, and feel like he is a unique person who doesn't look like everybody else, but he also noticed that they used his picture as the stereotypical hipster in that article. And so he wrote this frosty email threatening legal action if they didn't remove his photo from this because he is, this is terrible. This is not, he will not stand for this. So the editor did some checking. And he discovered that the photo was actually a stock photo taken of a model and not a photo of the guy who wrote the frosty email, which, as the editor says, proves the point. Hipsters look so much alike that they can't even tell themselves apart from each other. Fantastic. See, we we have these ideas about this is who I am. And if someone calls us out on it, well, that's not really who you are. This is the truth about you. We we push back against that. We get defensive. We fight back. And Well, no, that can't be true. That's not who I am. It's so hard for us to open ourselves up to hear this kind of thing, even when it's true, because we've built up defenses. And this is who I am. We think we know about ourselves. We're ready to defend ourselves against anything that's, that's threatening that identity that we built up. And yet we're so easily self-deluded. That's what we see here with, with the people that Jesus addresses. They think they know who they are. We are Abraham's children. We're, we're right with God. We're following him. And you know, Jesus is saying, no, you're not okay. You're on the path to destruction right now. Your actions are showing that you're not who you think you are. And in doing this, he's offering them a chance to understand that and to turn and to have healing. But they refuse. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Do you see that these beautiful, amazing offers just keep coming throughout this passage? Anyone who obeys the words of Jesus will never taste death. He's offering them eternal life, and yet they're just stuck calling names. It's going to spiral down. Verse 52. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, that you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? 
Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered him, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And this now reaches the climax of the exchange. Jesus now claims eternal existence, that he was present already, existent already before Abraham. And the words he uses are a claim at divinity. This is that the language that God used when he spoke of himself. So Isaiah 43.10 talks about God saying that he is, like I am. That's his designator. And that's not lost on the Jews here. They recognize that he is claiming oneness with the one true God. And this will not stand. This is blasphemy. They pick up stones. They're going to kill him. And what's striking to me about this passage is the contrast between what Jesus is offering and how the people respond. Jesus is making these incredible claims. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You will be in light. If you follow me, if you hold my words, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. If those the Son sets free are free indeed, whoever obeys my word will never taste death. These amazing offers, breathtaking hope. But the people miss it, and they miss it because they don't understand who Jesus is. How could, he, how could he possibly be the Son of God? And they don't get who they are. We're fine. We're Abraham's children. We're all good. So they're mistaken about Jesus, and they're mistaken about themselves, and so they totally miss out on what Jesus is offering them here. Here's my concern. My concern is that you and I today will do the same thing. Maybe we'll get parts of who Jesus is, but maybe we're, we're stuck in an understanding of who we are and an identity that we've built up that insulates us from actually hearing the good news of Jesus. Maybe we're in the same position as them. And I'm, I'm sp- talking specifically to the people in the room. I'm, I'm talking to people who, who come to church regularly and, and maybe give faithfully and, and do lots of religious things. Like we, it's very easy for us to assume, well, we're in the right then. We're on the right side of the story. But we have to look deeper to understand that that we, like everyone else on this planet, before a holy God, are desperate sinners in need of grace. I loved over the past uh, two weeks hearing our our preachers give testimonies of of what Jesus has done in their lives. They've they've shared their, their testimony of coming to trust in Jesus, and both of them testified that Jesus significantly disrupted their lives. So last week, uh, David shared how he grew up totally outside of the church. It wasn't even an option for him but he came to see through uh, the church that, that he was living a hopeless life. And seeing that need that he had, that he was living without hope, he came to see the beauty of the gospel and, and see that there is true, eternal hope here. And it, it transformed his life. A couple weeks ago, Nolan shared how he grew up in church but then drifted away from church, was kind of living outside of the church, and how God used different circumstances to show him the, the weight of his own sin. And seeing that the weight of that, the gravity of sin, broke him down. And then he, he saw that there is a Savior for all of those sins, for him. So the great thing about these stories is they remind us that God pursues us in Jesus. 
And how he does that is by showing us our need and then showing us that there is a Savior who meets that need. Whether it's hopelessness or the weight of our sin, whatever is going on, we need to see that need if we're ever going to respond by turning to the Savior. See, some of us, well, we weren't far from the church. We stayed in the church. This is my story. I, I grew up in the church. I stayed in the church. I was confident that I was in the right with God. I believed in Jesus. I lived a moral life, so I was set. But when it came down to it, I had no sense of the weight of my sin. I was one of the good kids after all. I, I'm right with God. I must be on the right side of these stories. But then the more I read stories like John 8, the more I came to realize that I'm actually on the wrong side of these stories. I'm like the people who think, hey, I'm in the right here. Look at my heritage. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm right with God. And miss out on Jesus. That's the side of the story that I kept finding myself on more and more. And the more I came to understand the holiness of God, the more the depravity of my heart was exposed. And I have to say, this was a miserable time. I hated this. It was so uncomfortable built my sense of self around being a good Christian person. And this came crashing down as I came to see what was really in my heart and and where I really fit in biblical stories like this. It was miserable. But at the same time, God was applying the gospel to my life. I was seeing in a fresh way the beauty of the story of Jesus. I, I wasn't righteous in myself, but I didn't have to be because Jesus lived the perfect life that I could have never lived. And he offers that to me as his gift. He knows what's in my heart, and he died, and he rose to bring me new life. But listen, if we never get to the point of seeing our true need before him, then we'll never know that we really need a Savior, and we'll never know the goodness of that Savior. When we come to the Bible, when we come to church confident that we know what's going on and that we are right before God, what happens is we end up insulating ourselves from actually receiving the salvation that Jesus offers us. So we're going to keep it very simple today, just the basics of the gospel. Jesus shows us who we really are. He shows us that that our starting point is that we are sinners desperately in need of grace. We are far more flawed than we would ever dare to admit to anybody. And that's true whether we're like the woman who's caught in adultery. Her sin is exposed before everybody. Whether we have been totally distant from the church, never set foot in, the, in, in the, a church building before, whether we grew up in church or walked away, or whether we have never missed a Sunday in our entire life, it's the same starting point for all of us. Before a holy God, we are sinners in great need. Jesus shows us our need. He shows us who we truly are, but he doesn't leave us there. He offers us life, just like he did with a woman whose, whose sin is exposed. She's caught in adultery. He offers her life. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. And he tells us who he is. I am the light of the world. If you'll follow me, you walk out of darkness into light. Those that the sun sets free are free indeed. Those who cling to his word, obey his word, will never see death. Let's put down our defenses and and open ourselves up to hear what God has to say about us and to receive the offers that Jesus gives us. We're going to take some time right now to to pray together, and and as we pray, we're going to use this as an opportunity to quiet ourselves before God and to open our hearts to him so that we would receive the gospel uh, this morning. So would you please pray with me?
Our God, we recognize that we are so imperfect in our understanding of even ourselves. We have an idea of who we are, but the truth is that that idea of who we are, our self-identity, our self-understanding has been shaped by many things, many of which have nothing to do with you. We have heard who we are from other people. We have our own ideas of who we are, but we recognize that we can be disastrously mistaken. God, I pray that you would show us the reality of who we are through the power of your Spirit. God, for those of us who feel hopeless right now, who feel the weight of our distance from God, who feel grief at running from you, who are tired by the things that are happening in our lives, I pray that you would break through all of that to show us that there is hope. And God, for those of us who are self-confident, who think that we have this right, we've got this down, I pray that you would break through the shell of our hearts so that we would see our need before you. God, we don't want to be defensive this morning. We want to hear your word because you speak truth. Your words are life. God, as you show us the truth of who we are, I pray also that you'd show us the truth of who you are and now who we are in you. I thank you for life. I thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. I thank you that he calls us out of darkness into light. I thank you that the Son, your Son, Jesus, sets us free so that we can experience what it means to be free indeed. And I pray that that would be what happens in our hearts. We'd be set free from the slavery in our hearts to be the people that you have created us to be. God, we confess that we are who you say we are. In your Son, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are loved. We are healed. We are sons and daughters of the King. Father, may our identity always be found in who we are in Jesus. We know that there's no righteousness in ourselves. We know that we're not perfect in ourselves. We know that we are desperately in need of a Savior. And I thank you so much that you sent your Son to be that Savior for us. And that now, as we put our hope and our trust in him, we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of the King because of Jesus and who we are in him. It's to his glory that we pray this morning. Amen.